don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What's up, crew? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. Um, I have been... Uh, uh, as I have said in the past, I'm going to be away from being able to do any episodes um, about a week from now, and it'll be about a nine-day period. I think it's uh, I think it's like seven episodes, five, six, seven, seven or eight episodes that I'm going to have to, that I'm trying to cover for. And um, I think I've got a really fun walk through some of the first things that I read um, like kind of digging into all of the philosophy and uh, the the political implications of Bitcoin. Um, and I've been digging through the Nakamoto Institute lately and really enjoying getting a refresh on stuff that I read so, so long ago. And one that I've been sitting on for a while and waiting for a good opportunity and sitting here waiting on uh, Hurricane Florence to do its thing uh, might be the perfect opportunity. So this is from Philip R. Zimmerman. Um, if you do not know, he's the, uh, the creator of PGP, and he wrote, Why I Wrote PGP in June of 1991. Um, so this is before email is huge, and realizing the implications of privacy and the threat or the the risk of losing it in the electronic age. Um, so again, without further ado, we will jump right into Phil Zimmerman's Why I Wrote PGP on the NakamotoInstitute.org. Quote, Whatever you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. Mahatma Gandhi it's personal, it's private, and it's no one's business but yours. You may be planning a political campaign, discussing your taxes, or having a secret romance. Or you may be communicating with a political dissident in a repressive country. Whatever it is, you don't want your private electronic mail or email or confidential documents read by anyone else. There's nothing wrong with asserting your privacy. Privacy is as apple pie as the Constitution. The right to privacy is spread implicitly throughout the Bill of Rights, but when the United States Constitution was framed, the Founding Fathers saw no need to explicitly spell out the right to a private conversation. That would have been silly. 200 years ago, all conversations were private. If someone else was within an earshot, you could just go out behind the barn and have your conversation there. No one could listen in without your knowledge. The right to a private conversation was a natural right, not just in a philosophical sense, but in a law of physics sense, given the technology of the time. But with the coming of the information age, starting with the invention of the telephone, all that has changed. Now most of our conversations are conducted electronically. This allows our most intimate conversations to be exposed without our knowledge. Cellular phone calls may be monitored by anyone with a radio. 
Electronic mail sent across the internet is no more secure than cellular phone calls. Email is rapidly replacing postal mail, becoming the norm for everyone, not the novelty it was in the past. Until recently, if the government wanted to violate the privacy of ordinary citizens, they had to expend a certain amount of expense and labor to intercept, steam open, and read paper mail. Or they had to listen to and possibly transcribe spoken telephone conversation, at least before automatic voice recognition technology became available. This kind of labor-intensive monitoring was not practical on a large scale. It was only done in important cases when it seemed worthwhile. This is like catching one fish at a time with a hook and a line. Today, email can be routinely and automatically scanned for interesting keywords on a vast scale without detection. This is like drift net fishing. And exponential growth in computing power is making the same thing possible with voice traffic. Perhaps you think your email is legitimate enough that encryption is unwarranted. If you really are a law-abiding citizen with nothing to hide, then why don't you always send your paper mail on postcards? Why not submit to drug testing on demand? Why require a warrant for police searches of your house? Are you trying to hide something? If you hide your mail inside envelopes, does that mean you must be a subversive or a drug dealer or maybe a paranoid nut? Do law-abiding citizens have any need to encrypt their email? What if everyone believed that law-abiding citizens should use postcards for their mail? If a nonconformist tried to assert his privacy by using an envelope for his mail, it would draw suspicion. Perhaps the authorities would open his mail to see what he's hiding. Fortunately, we don't live in that kind of world because everyone protects most of their mail with envelopes. So no one draws suspicion by asserting their privacy with an envelope. There's safety in numbers. Analogously, it would be nice if everyone routinely used encryption for all their email, innocent or not, so that no one drew suspicion by asserting their email privacy with encryption. Think of it as a form of solidarity. Senate Bill 266, a 1991 omnibus anti-crime bill, had an unsettling measure buried in it. If this non-binding resolution had become real law, it would have forced manufacturers of secure communications equipment to insert special trap doors in their products so that the government could read anyone's encrypted messages. It reads, quote, It is the sense of Congress that providers of electronic communication services and manufacturers of electronic communication service equipment shall ensure that communication systems permit the government to obtain the plain text contents of voice, data, and other communications when appropriately authorized by law, end quote. It was this bill that led me to publish PGP electronically for free that year, shortly before the measure was defeated after vigorous protest by civil libertarians and industry groups. The 1994 Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, C-A-L-E-A, mandated that phone companies install remote wiretapping ports into their central office digital switches, creating a new technology infrastructure for point-and-click wiretapping so that federal agents no longer have to go out and attach alligator clips to phone lines. 
Now they will be able to sit in their headquarters in Washington and listen in on all of your phone calls. Of course, the law still requires a court order for a wiretap, but while technology infrastructures can persist for generations, laws and policies can change overnight. Once a communications infrastructure optimized for surveillance becomes entrenched, a shift in political conditions may lead to abuse of this newfound power. Political conditions may shift with the election of a new government or perhaps more abruptly from the bombing of a federal building. A year after the CALEA passed, the FBI disclosed plans to require the phone companies to build into their infrastructure the capacity to simultaneously wiretap 1% of all phone calls in all major U.S. cities. This would represent more than a thousand-fold increase over previous levels in the number of phones that could be wiretapped. In previous years, there were only about a thousand court-ordered wiretaps in the United States per year at the federal, state, and local levels combined. It is hard to see how the government could even employ enough judges to sign enough wiretap orders to wiretap 1% of all our phone calls, much less hire enough federal agents to sit and listen to all of that traffic in real time. The only plausible way of processing that amount of traffic is a massive Orwellian application of automated voice recognition technology to sift through it all, searching for interesting keywords or searching for a particular speaker's voice. If the government doesn't find the target in the first 1% sample, the wiretaps can be shifted to a different 1% until the target is found, or until everyone's phone line has been checked for subversive traffic. The FBI said they need this capacity to plan for the future. This plan sparked such outrage that it was defeated in Congress. But the mere fact that the FBI even asked for these broad powers is revealing of their agenda. Advances in technology will not permit the maintenance of the status quo as far as privacy is concerned. The status quo is unstable. If we do nothing, new technologies will give the government new automatic surveillance capabilities that Stalin could never have dreamed of. The only way to hold the line on privacy in the information age is strong cryptography. You don't have to distrust the government to want to use cryptography. Your business can be wiretapped by business rivals, organized crime, or foreign governments. Several foreign governments, for example, admit to using their signals intelligence against companies from other countries to give their own corporations a competitive advantage. Ironically, the United States government's restrictions on cryptography in the 1990s have weakened U.S. corporate defenses against foreign intelligence and organized crime. The government knows what a pivotal role cryptography is destined to play in the power relationship with its people. In April of 1993, the Clinton administration unveiled a bold new encryption policy initiative, which had been under development at the National Security Agency, or NSA, since the start of the Bush administration. The centerpiece of this initiative was a government-built encryption device called the Clipper Chip, containing a new classified NSA encryption algorithm. The government tried to encourage private industry to design it into all their secure communication products, such as secure phones, secure faxes, and so on. AT&T put Clipper into its secure voice products. 
The catch? At the time of manufacture, each clipper chip is loaded with its own unique key, and the government gets to keep a copy, placed in escrow. Not to worry, though, the government promises they will use these keys to read your traffic only, quote, when duly authorized by law. Of course, to make Clipper completely effective, the next logical step would be to outlaw other forms of cryptography. The government initially claimed that using Clipper would be voluntary, that no one would be forced to use it instead of other types of cryptography. But the public reaction against the Clipper chip was strong, stronger than the government had anticipated. The computer industry monolithically proclaimed its opposition to using Clipper. FBI Director Louis Free responded to a question in a press conference in 1994 by saying that if Clipper failed to gain public support and FBI wiretaps were shut out by non-government-controlled cryptography, his office would have no choice but to seek legislative relief. Later, in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City tragedy, Mr. Free testified before the Senate Judicial Committee that public availability of strong cryptography must be curtailed by the government, although no one had suggested that cryptography was used by the bombers. The government has a track record that does not inspire confidence that they will never abuse our civil liberties. The FBI's COINTELPRO program targeted groups that opposed government policies. They spied on the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. They wiretapped the phone of Martin Luther King. Nixon had his enemies list. Then there was the Watergate mess. More recently, Congress has either attempted to or succeeded in passing laws curtailing our civil liberties on the internet. Some elements of the Clinton White House collected confidential FBI files on Republican civil servants, conceivably for political exploitation. And some overzealous prosecutors have shown a willingness to go to the ends of the earth in pursuit of exposing sexual indiscretions of political enemies. At no time in the past century has public distrust of the government been so broadly distributed across the political spectrum as it is today. Throughout the 1990s, I figured that if we want to resist this unsettling trend in the government to outlaw cryptography, one measure we can apply is to use cryptography as much as we can now while it's still legal. When use of strong cryptography becomes popular, it's harder for the government to criminalize it. Therefore, using PGP is good for preserving democracy. If privacy is outlawed, only outlaws will have privacy. It appears that the deployment of PGP must have worked, along with years of steady public outcry and industry pressure to relax the export controls. In the closing months of 1999, the Clinton administration announced a radical shift in export policy for crypto technology. They essentially threw out the whole export control regime. Now we are finally able to export strong cryptography with no upper limits on strength. It has been a long struggle, but we have finally won, at least on the export control front in the U.S. Now we must continue our efforts to deploy strong crypto to blunt the effects increasing surveillance efforts on the internet by various governments. And we still need to entrench our right to use it domestically over the objections of the FBI. PGP empowers people to take their privacy into their own hands. There has been a growing social need for it. 
That's why I wrote it. All right, and that was Philip Zimmerman's Why I Wrote PGP. And again, this was, um, you can find this on the nakamotoinstitute.org. Um, note, I did say that it was written in 1991. Uh, this was updated in 1999. That's where there are a lot of references to laws and developments uh, related to this in 93, 94, and 99. Um, so uh, if you were wondering why that was, why he was able to see the future, then it was just because he uh, uh, added a lot to this uh, article in 1999. So um, at the same time that the, the quote-unquote battle was won over the exporting of cryptography, and uh, it's crazy how many of the cypherpunks who are pivotal to Bitcoin, uh, its history and, you know, hash cash, like all these things, were huge, huge proponents or, um, uh, I guess, opposers of the clipper chip and all of these um, things that happened in the 90s that most people were hugely affected by without them even knowing. Um, uh, so many of them actually had a hand or played a part in the creation of this technology that we're really are taking for granted today. Um, I mean, cryptography is the basis of, like, without cryptography, you don't own Bitcoin. Like, there's no, the, the entire system of independently owning something becomes illegal, essentially, if these things had been passed. Uh, so, um, we owe a lot more than people realize to the efforts of these people in the 90s when it, it wasn't even nothing about privacy and cryptography was even was in the forefront of the public's mind really um and we have still given so many so many so much power to the government and i mean the the number of things since i mean we've we've pretty much lost all privacy outside of strong cryptography today um we've now got an entire secret court that prosecutes um uh, corporations and can hold them liable for even telling people that they're under um, uh, prosecution. I mean, the 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 insanity. We we didn't even have Homeland Department of Homeland Defense, uh, the Patriot Act, the NDAA. I mean, there the number of things where we have truly lost privacy in so many ways. Like this, the battle is far from over, and we have far from won it, but we have at least secured the right and the the power to use this uh, technology regardless and we have at least crossed that that boundary that, that they won't be able to i don't see any sensible way that they could um ever outlaw cryptography even if they manage to destroy privacy so resoundly on our iphones and our android anytime that we use google or facebook or Twitter or any of those things like I consider any use of those platforms straight straight through the NSA's computer um, so and I think anybody should consider it that way because if they wanted it they have it um, and arguably with a lot of the things leaked in vault 7 and the what's come to light with Edward Snowden and um, uh, WikiLeaks and all of the revelations we've seen in the past decade or so um, I think it's pretty clear that you'd have to be a fool to think that they aren't 
accumulating everything, um, or at least as much as they can possibly get their hands on. And all of these major companies are entirely complicit, and I don't think they really have a choice in being complicit with it from what I've read. Uh, so privacy is a huge, huge concern. Um, I say it all the time. Privacy is security. There is no, there is no way to uh, keep your safe, your your internet presence, your personal self, and your finances, particularly in the age of Bitcoin, safe without privacy. It is a a a fundamental element of security. Without it, security cannot be. I mean, everything about security in the digital age is about limiting the scarcity of what allows you to identify yourself, um, like passwords, usernames, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, you identify yourself with uh, personal information. When that is out there, anybody can be you, which means they have access to any part of your life that is on the internet, which is increasingly a lot of people's lives. It's arguably becoming the dominant part of people's lives is what we do online if it is not if we're not able to keep it private we have no security and there are so many arguments that i mean the whole the whole if you have nothing to hide um is that argument is absolutely senseless um and there's a thousand analogies why but I don't even think it, it almost seems unimportant to even address because it's so blatantly wrong. I mean, it's the same reason you don't have, do you have a door on your bathroom? It's not because you're smoking crack in there. It's because you're taking a shit and you don't want people to look at you while you're taking a shit. And we're losing that ability. Like we have cameras and we take our phones in there when we take a poo now. So like we've, we're going to lose that if we don't have security over our own devices and increasingly every part of our lives and everywhere we go we are attached to multiple electronic devices and if we cannot guarantee the security and the privacy on those devices we can't guarantee much of anything anymore um and i think that's absolutely critical it's why i talk about it all the time on the podcast and why i think it's a I think it's one of the most critical pieces to Bitcoin actually surviving. Um, if we can't get privacy in Bitcoin, I think um, it will be, it will end up much like the internet. I think it will have become a tool to destroy privacy rather than, uh, rather than help it. Um, and I don't want to see that happen. So uh, this was just, this was just a really good read that I thought was, um, it's a really good one to hear, like from the always good to go back into the history of the cypherpunks and the people who made this uh, entire space and all of this technology possible and understand what they were thinking when they created it. Um, because I don't think you can separate the tool from the mission that it was built in, the mission in mind when it was built. Uh, so. Um, I think we will go ahead and close that one here. Um, and uh, uh, don't forget to uh, check out the Nakamoto Institute. Um, we will be reading a lot of stuff from up there. Um, I think specifically, like I said, I want to go through a, a lot of the cypherpunk history and some of the writings that I came across 
when I first got into this space um, and was really becoming interested in cryptography um, back in the day. Uh, and the Nakamoto Institute has a ton of that available. And I want to hit that while I'll have those released for when I am out of country here for a while so that I don't miss any episodes and y'all, uh, you guys still have the content on your commute or wherever it is that you're listening to these episodes. Um, don't want to just have a big gap. I'll, I'll leave you with something while I am away from the microphone. All right, guys. Um, don't forget to follow me at the Cryptoconomy on Medium, Mastodon, and Twitter. You can find the Mastodon link to my instance or to the instance I am on uh, straight in my Twitter profile. Uh, don't forget to check out the website, uh, cryptoeconomy.life, um, where you can leave comments or uh, check out all the other stuff. I'm slowly getting it organized so that you can just dig into and listen to episodes by topic. That's kind of where I want this to go. Um, and uh, these will all be in the, uh, when I get there, this will be in the cypherpunk history, uh, probably with um, PGP and Phil Zimmerman. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and share it with all of your friends who want to learn about cryptography or Bitcoin or the crypto economy. Uh, everybody who's interested in this space, um, I, I am making this podcast to have all of this content available to people who do not have the time to sit down and read 200 different articles and uh cypherpunk manifestos and all that good stuff um so that we, we can really dig into these topics uh in depth um but make it easily accessible to everyone so uh please share the podcast around with everybody you think would be interested and uh, leave me a review if you are getting value out of this show. Um, it's a huge help. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who has. And, of course, if you would like to support the show um, uh, with your Bitcoins, uh, I will always have my Bitcoin donation address available. And, of course, you can buy your um, Trezor hardware wallet through my affiliate link, uh, which won't cost you a dime. It will send a couple of bucks my way, though, to help out the Crypto Economy Podcast. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Um, uh, we managed to get a quiet spot here, so the wind is not howling, and hopefully there wasn't too much background noise. It's been kind of calm here for a bit, and uh, I will get back to my uh, hurricane bunkering down, and I will catch you all after the weekend with another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys.